A dozen U.S. attorneys general have sued the FDA to expand access to an abortion medication. It accuses the Food and Drug Administration of targeting the drug with a unique set of restrictions. I'm Ader Palta. And I'm Scott Simon, and this is Up First from NPR News. The federal lawsuit asks that an abortion drug be declared as safe and for the court to knock back additional regulations on it. And we'll have the latest from Nigeria, where voters head to the polls today to elect the country's next president. High youth unemployment, inflation, and security are among the top concerns with voters there. Plus, is Ukraine prepared for a second year of war with Russia? Stay with us. We've got the news you need to start your weekend. A coalition of Democratic state attorneys general has filed a lawsuit that could set up a conflict between federal judges over regulation of a common abortion pill. The lawsuit accuses the FDA of layering on restrictions that generally apply to high-risk prescription drugs. NPR Sarah McCammon joins us. Thanks so much, Sarah. Hi, Scott. And help us understand the, the premise of this legal conflict. This all centers on the abortion drug called mifepristone. And it's important to understand that this drug has been the subject of heated political debate ever since it was first approved back in 2000 by the Food and Drug Administration. Abortion rights opponents fought its approval then, and they're still fighting it now. And even now, there's a separate ongoing case in federal court in Texas, a lawsuit that was brought by abortion rights opponents that could be decided any day. It is in front of a Trump-appointed judge who has the power to block access to this pill nationwide. And now we have another federal lawsuit, this one filed in Washington state by a dozen Democratic state attorneys general who are asking that judge to do just the opposite, Scott, to loosen restrictions on the drug. And what type of restrictions would they like to loosen? Mifepristone, which is used in first trimester abortions, is more heavily regulated than most other prescription drugs. So there are extra layers of FDA rules that are called a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, or RIMS. Those RIMS typically apply to higher risk drugs, things like opioids. Here's Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson, who is co-leading this suit. And those are very, very high risk, like fentanyl, for example. So really what we're asking the court to do is remove those restrictions and make access to this important medication more available to women across the country. And for years, major medical groups like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have wanted these extra rules on mifepristone removed. They've faced fierce resistance from anti-abortion groups on that. Now, the FDA under President Biden has loosened some of those rules, allowing mifepristone to be mailed, for example, and opening the door for retail pharmacies to eventually carry it. But there are some extra rules in place, things like special certification processes for prescribers above and beyond typical prescription drugs. And these attorneys general also want the judge to block the FDA from taking the drug off the market. Sarah, what has the response been so far from groups opposed to abortion who've been uh, fighting to block access to this drug? Well, I reached out to the Alliance Defending Freedom. That's the anti-abortion legal group leading the Mifepristone challenge in Texas. In a statement, their senior counsel, Eric Baptist, noted that a group of Democratic attorneys general filed a brief in that case supporting the FDA's approval of the drug. And he said he finds it, quote, highly ironic that some of the same attorneys general are now questioning the FDA's regulations when it comes to the rims that they want removed. I also reached out to the FDA about this latest lawsuit, and they said they don't comment on pending litigation. So two federal cases asking two federal judges to move 
in opposite directions. How does that get resolved? Right. It does set up an interesting conflict. That conflict could eventually end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. NPR National Correspondent Sarah McCammon. Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you. Ninety-three million registered Nigerians will vote in the presidential election today. Nigeria is Africa's most populous nation and biggest economy. And what happens today will have an impact on the region and beyond. And Pierre's Emmanuel Akinmutu is at a Lagos polling station. Emmanuel, thanks for being with us. Busy there, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Well, remind us what's at stake in these elections. For many people, it's the chance to change course in this country because the last eight years have frankly been extremely bleak for millions of people. On the economy, on insecurity, so much has felt like it's been lost. Um, We've had two recessions in the last eight years. The value of the Naira, the currency here, is more than halved. Um, We have had millions of job losses. Youth unemployment is high. Um, Inflation is high. And then on insecurity, it's been extremely difficult. You know, we're used to hearing about Boko Haram, Islamist insurgency, predominantly in northeast Nigeria. The government did a lot actually to set them back from being an occupying force. But insecurities proliferated beyond kind of regional pockets to across the country. Today we hear of kidnapped for ransoms every day. And so many people feel that Nigeria is at somewhat of a crossroads. So this election is consequential for Nigerians, it's consequential for the direction of the country, and many people feel this is a, a vital opportunity to set the country on a better path. Emmanuel, who are the front runners, and, and what, what issues seem to dominate? So this is where it gets really interesting. You know, we're used to having two standout candidates from a wide pack of candidates. This time, we have three strong candidates, all with a realistic chance of winning. First, we have Bola Ahmed Tinubu, who is a 70-year-old leader of the from the All Progressive Congress Party, that's the ruling party, and he's really a divisive figure. You know, he is someone who has been seen as a power broker in the country. He's a two-term governor of Lagos. Now he feels like it's his turn to be in power. Then we have Atiku Abubakar. He's 76, a former vice president from the People's Democratic Party. And then we have Peter Obi. He's 61 and is someone who has blown onto the political scene. He's a member of the establishment, but he's a paradoxical figure because he, even though he comes from the political class, he's drawn support from so many people who see him as an alternative politician, as someone who is bringing a different, more humane, more trustworthy face to politics. And he's tapped into this sense that a different kind of political leadership is possible. And the sense that, you know, change is profoundly needed. I spoke to Fadekemi Abiru. She works for Steers in Lagos. And they recently published a poll, one of many polls projecting Obi to win if the turnout is high. Nigeria's economic growth over the past two years has been sluggish. We've had two recessions. Inflation is at the highest that it's been. And so as a result of that, you have a situation where people are looking for a viable opposition that they can turn to because they believe that that's something that will change their fortunes. Emmanuel, you've covered Nigerian elections before. Um, What makes this potentially so significant? Every election is vital, you know, and so in a lot of senses, this election isn't really that different. But in another sense, it feels like a tipping point. You know, speaking to people who come to vote today, many of them feel this is a particularly urgent election and that things could get worse if things don't change. So really the elections are coming at a moment where people are desperate for the country to improve. And that's part of what's galvanized people to vote, particularly young people who've come out today, but also older people. You know, recently I spoke to Emmanuel Admokanos. 
He's an elderly businessman and he was campaigning recently in Lagos. I'm an old man, I'm running to 70 years. One of my daughters is in the US, the other one in the UK, the other one is about going to Canada. So they are all running away, that is why I'm here, so that none of them will run away again. So that the country will be better off for us to move to the next level. So this is what's pressing on people's minds today as they go out to vote in this election. And Pierre's Emmanuel Akinwoto at a polling station in Lagos. Thanks so much for being with us. Take care. Thanks, Scott. In the years since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we've seen some trends emerge. Russian forces have underachieved. Ukrainian forces have exceeded expectation, and Western support for Ukraine has remained surprisingly strong. But will this trajectory hold as the war enters the second year? NPR's national security correspondent Greg Myrie is here to talk about it. Hey there, Greg. Hi, Ader. So, Greg, what factors could send this war in a different direction? Well, neither Russia nor Ukraine has the same army it had a year ago. I spoke with a number of military analysts on this point, and and they all stress the same thing. Both armies have suffered heavy losses. They've lost a lot of experienced fighters and valuable equipment. So as they try to replace both people and military hardware, there's really no certainty that they can continue at the same pace. Both sides have vulnerabilities, which are only likely to grow as this war continues to drag on. Okay, so let's look at both sides. Um, What are the weak points for the Russians? Well, when the Russian military tried to take Ukraine by storm a year ago, they had massive amounts of, of military hardware, but that's just not the case anymore. For example, the Russians have burned through ammunition at a furious and, and really unsustainable pace. They've been using a lot less recently, apparently, to try to conserve some. Also, the Pentagon recently estimated that Russia lost about 2,000 tanks, or roughly half of all its tanks, in fighting last year. Now, I spoke about the Russian forces with Dmitry Alperovich, a Russia expert who heads a think tank called the Silverado Policy Accelerator. If at the beginning they didn't have enough troops, but they had plenty of equipment, now it's sort of the reverse, where they're flowing more troops in, but they may no longer have enough equipment to actually execute a successful campaign. And what about the Ukrainians? Uh, What are the limitations that they're facing? Well, the Ukrainians carried out a very successful offensive in the fall by exploiting places where the Russians were vulnerable, places where they had relatively few troops. Now, this forced the Russians to retreat inside Ukraine, but it also means that the Russians now have less territory that they're trying to defend. So the Russians have built a lot of trenches. They've hardened their defensive positions in the two places where they're strongest, the eastern region of the Donbass and the southern peninsula of Crimea. Again, here's Alperovich. So I think it's going to be very difficult for the Ukrainians to make quick progress. Uh, They may be able to sort of grind their way through the Russian lines over time. But unless the Russian line just collapses, I think it's going to be difficult to see the type of lightning offensives that we saw, for example, in Kharkiv last year. So we just saw President Biden in Ukraine this past week. Um, He was also in Poland with other Western leaders supporting Ukraine. Why wouldn't this strong solidarity with Ukraine continue? 
You know, Ader, you're right. Western countries have been much more unified than many predicted. Um, just last month, Western countries pledged the biggest military assistance package yet, and it included tanks for the first time. But there are a couple reasons why this high level of support isn't a certainty. Some Republicans in the U.S. House oppose more aid, and at some point this year, President Biden will need to seek additional aid for Ukraine, and we'll have to see if most Republicans do remain on board. And second, Ukraine is also expending vast quantities of ammunition and weapons. The U.S. and some European countries are trying to ramp up production, but they may not be able to do that fast enough. And this could become an issue if the fighting continues at current levels. That's NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thank you. My pleasure. And that's up first for Saturday, February 25th, 2023. I'm Scott Simon. And I'm Ada Peralta. Andrew Craig and Fernando Naro produced this Saturday version of Up First. Adil Al-Shalchi, Melissa Grape, Ashley Listenby, Ed McNulty, and Dee Parvas edit. Our directors are Danny Hensel and Michael Radcliffe. Alex Drewinskis, Anna Glovna, and Jay Sizz are the technical directors, along with help from many engineers who help us sound as good as we can. E.B. Stone is our supervising editor, Sarah Oliver is our executive producer, and Jim Kane is our deputy managing editor. And all those people lend their talents to Weekend Edition as well. Up First is back tomorrow with a story about the cattle-related fraud schemes that landed a Washington state rancher in prison. And... There is more news, interviews, books, music, and just plain fun this weekend on the radio. Weekend Edition airs Saturday and Sunday morning. Find your NPR station at stations.npr.org.